Hello, and welcome to the first episode of the BV podcast for the autumnal month of October 2023. Uh, not that it's been particularly autumnal yet, has it? I'm Jenny Devitt. And it's hello again from me, Terry Bennett. And in this first episode, we'll have some of your letters. And newly elected Lib Dem MP for Froome and Somerton, Sarah Dyke, introduces herself and tells us of her aspirations for her new constituency, one which includes part of the Blackmore Vale. Ken Huggins from the North Dorset Green Party reflects on two positive environment-focused events which have taken place in Dorset. And North Dorset Labour's Pat Osborne says that rising NHS waiting list deaths are a grim consequence of Tory policy. Chris Loder MP calls on Dorset Council to tackle the road safety issues apparent on the A30 between Sherburne and Yeovil. We'll hear from co-director of the Dorchester Literary Festival about some of the authors who'll be taking part in that festival over the course of this week. And you can hear my interview with Dorset councillor Pauline Batstone, who's recently travelled halfway around the world to visit the other Dorset in Tasmania. But to start us off in the second episode of the October 2023 BV podcast, let's hear from our editor, Laura Hitchcock. Hello. This month I've been just thinking about how easy it is to get caught up with how terrible things are, how broken the world is, how hopeless things feel, how bad people can be. The problems around us just seem massive and mostly unsolvable by you or I. And the constant battering of all that overwhelming hopelessness does take its toll. I know I start to avoid the news. I actively switch off or turn away from terrible stories. I choose comedy over dark drama. But that's no answer either. As I've pulled together this issue, these thoughts have been percolating in my brain. Even though I'm blessed with a naturally sunny disposition, possibly annoyingly so, I'm quick to see the good. I take the positive. I let the bad stuff go. And as this issue grew page by page, the answer was right under my fingertips. There's story after story about good people. Because we human beings, despite our constant bad press, really are innately good. We will stop and wait as a slow-moving elderly person crosses the road. We will pass an item down for a short stranger from the top shelf at the supermarket. We will take our trolley back and park it neatly. We will run to pick up a hat that flew off and laugh as we hand it back. We'll smile at the cat stretched out in the sun and naturally, of course, say the obligatory big stretch when it gets up. We will say bless you to a stranger when they sneeze and I love your shoes to a total stranger on the train station. This month, among the pages, you'll find a village which has simply scooped up a devastated young family and provided the support they needed. There's time being taken to welcome and entertain refugees. The astonishing kindness of a donation more than 80 years ago, which was a thank you for a previous kindness, and it's still creating ripples. Events made possible by huge teams working together, not because they're paid, but because they believe that it's worth doing. Communities supporting small local businesses, which in turn are run by good people working hard to do good things. And so much money being raised by good people for good things. I don't know anyone who simply gives up a little time occasionally for a good cause and then regrets it. Anywho, I just found the thought comforting. And I'll finish with a little only Laura-ism from this month. We went out to dinner, Courtney and I. Gorgeous food, a proper date night for us. Such a lovely time. Instead of dessert, I chose the cheese plate. It arrived with four hunks of cheese and I tried a little bit of each in turn. Camembert, Roquefort, cheddar and a rogue one I didn't know. I placed a neat chunk... Creamy, soft, almost oily texture, intriguing, onto a cracker. 
and I took a bite. Butter. I had a chunk of butter in my mouth. Letters to the editor. Tony Penn writes as follows. Thank you for your excellent magazine. The spread of articles introduces the broad spectrum of Dorset life and times. We love it. The September edition was particularly interesting for my wife and I because it covered some of the life and times of Alan Turing and his connection with Sherman School. I wonder if you could help, not a matter requiring a Turing answer, but could your readers advise where in Dorset I can find a Cox's orange pippin tree that I can plant in the garden? And if anybody can help Tony with that request, please contact the editor, Laura. And Shirley War from All Western says... I feel that I must record for the history of All Weston that our friend and neighbour Joe has moved to Pastures New. A loyal supporter of all things connected to our village, she will be much missed by us villagers, but will now live so much closer to her family. Joe came to live in the village after her marriage, to live in the house that her husband's grandparents had moved into when it was built, and she has continued to live there ever since. She was a stalwart supporter of the church, the village school, served on numerous village committees, was a parish councillor and assisted with the WI country market. Readers will no doubt recall meeting her at our famous car boot sales. We wish her a happy time in her warm and comfortable new flat with lots of new adventures. Dick Lawrence of Gillingham makes contact regarding Dorset's local transport. In my personal opinion, Dorset Council is the worst I have ever known. Vast cuts in public transport make it impossible for many to go anywhere on Saturdays. There is no weekend bus service anymore. Non-drivers who live in Shaftesbury are effectively stranded at weekends, unable to get to Gillingham Station. Tourists cannot get to Shaftesbury. Those who wish to attend educational and recreational courses during the day are now unable to do so because the bus service disturbance to Newton has been cut and the times of buses that do still run have been changed. There are no buses in the evening at all. It's awful for pensioners and young people attending youth clubs, what youth clubs there are, for they cannot get home and have to be collected by parents. This at a time when we should be encouraging people to use public transport. A Conservative Council. May it soon be gone with its government. John Draper of Blandford writes about Blandford's lack of clinic. Why are there no COVID vaccination sites listed for Blandford Forum, he writes. I've received two invitations to have a COVID vaccination, one by email and one by post. I went online to make a booking and found that all the information was out of date and did not relate to winter vaccinations. I then tried the online national booking service and was offered a booking anywhere between Coal Hill in Wimborne and Southampton, with no reference to Blandford Forum. I spoke to a person at the national booking service and he offered me a booking in Verwood. When I asked about Blandford, he said he didn't know. I then went back online and found a reference to the Whitecliffe surgery. When I phoned them, a recorded message advised me to press 1 on my keypad, which in turn referred me back to the National Booking Service. It would appear that Blandford Forum is being left out of the vaccination scheme. And there's a note from the editor. Having spoken to the Blandford group practice, they assure us that there are flu and COVID vaccine clinics every Saturday. Please call their dedicated booking line on 01258 444 We've had so many messages on the passing of Roger Guttridge and far too many to publish them all, but here is a small selection. 
He was an exceptional journalist and will be much missed, says Damien Cullinane. Journalists as good as he was are few and far between now. Condolences to his family. Mark Vine says, a great Dorset writer who inspired me to write about my own county's history and heritage. And Chris Gill. I remember Roger well. He was a really nice bloke. I worked in the darkroom at the Echo at the same time. So sorry to hear. And now for what our politicians have to say for the month of October 2023. First of all, Lib Dems' Sarah Dyke, the new MP for Somerton and Froome. She says she'll be focusing on water pollution and a healthcare law. Two months into the job, Sarah Dyke takes a moment to look back and to outline her plans for the future. It's been just over two months since I was elected, she says, as the new MP for Somerton and Froome, a whirlwind experience, but also the honour of a lifetime. I'd like to use my first BB column as an opportunity to reflect on my first few weeks in office and to set out my aims. I'm determined to stand up for our area and to fight to ensure my constituents get a fair deal. Since being elected, I've been active throughout the constituency. I held a village tour earlier in the summer where I met with as many people as I could and listened to their concerns, both local and national. I'll be holding regular surgeries and you can also get in touch by writing to me at sarah.dyke.mp at parliament.uk. On my first day in Parliament, I pressed the Secretary of State for Education on the RAAC crisis, and I also raised the deep local concerns of the lack of NHS dentists and GP appointments by writing to the Secretary of State for Health and Social Care. I've asked for a meeting with the Secretary of State to discuss these issues and to hear about the steps his department is taking to resolve the shortage. Everyone should be able to access an NHS dentist if they need one, and no one should be forced to pay hundreds of pounds for private care. The Liberal Democrats have called for proper workforce planning for health and social care, including provisions for dentists and dental staff, to be written into law. I believe this is crucial in order to provide the level of overall care people in Somerset and everywhere else deserve. I also want to use my position to campaign on the state of our natural environment. I am seriously concerned about the health and welfare of our rivers, which have been massively polluted over recent years. Our natural environment has to be something that we can all take pride in, and I'll fight for this to be the case. I've written to the Secretary of State for Leveling Up Housing and Communities to urge him to support Somerset Council's bid to introduce modular water treatment units at wastewater treatment works. This project will help to unlock vital housing in Somerset while ensuring that our natural environment is protected. Finally, can I take this opportunity to say thank you to everyone who supported me at the recent by-election. I'll continue to work hard for our local community and to be your voice in Parliament. And a note from the editor. The Somerton and Froome constituency may be a Somerset one, but it naturally overlaps with the Blackmore Vale area, stretching as it does north of Sherbourne to Milbourne Port and Henstridge, up to the A303 and Wincanton. Ken Huggins of the North Dorset Green Party comments that there's a good cop in Dorset. We certainly live in interesting times, and September was no exception. Thankfully, there were some positive events in Dorset, of which more in a moment. 
On the downside, we saw yet more record-breaking weather. Remember that heatwave at the beginning of the month. As I write, we see another weekend of unseasonally warm temperatures on the forecast. In spite of all the warning signs of our changing climate, the government chose this month to begin rowing back on its previous net-zero pledges. It even claimed to be fighting against a completely bogus war on motorists, which looks like a desperate effort to drag itself back up the poles by appealing to the minority of the population who still think global warming is someone else's problem to deal with. Putting such madness to one side for the moment, happily there were two really positive environmental events here in Dorset. On the 9th of September, a Conference of the Parties, COP, was held at Dorchester's historic Corn Exchange, making Dorset the first county to hold such an event. Something to be proud of, and let's hope others will follow us. Three of Dorset's leading climate and environmental action groups joined forces to organise the event. Zero Carbon Dorset, Dorset Climate Action Network, that's Dorset Can, and Sustainable Dorset. The conference echoed the annual international COPs where representatives of world governments seek to address the critical issues of climate change and the environment. The objective was to inform, engage and galvanise Dorset residents into greater action to tackle the issues around climate change and the environment. The day was packed with excellent sessions and the crowded venue buzzed with enthusiastic attendees all day. If you're sad to have missed it, you can catch up via YouTube, as the live sessions were recorded. The other inspiring event this month was the 10-day Planet Purbeck Festival from the 15th to the 24th of September. There was a huge range of activities, too many to list here, so see yourself on the Planet Purbeck website. Again, the enthusiasm of presenters and attendees was heartwarming. Everyone was committed to learning from one another and eager to work together to find the solutions we so urgently need. If only our government was so inclined, instead of focusing on division and delay. North Dorset Labour's Pat Osborne says rising NHS waiting list deaths are a grim consequence. In England, more than 120,000 people died last year while on an NHS waiting list for treatment, double the number recorded in 2018. It's a stark reminder of the impacts of long waits for care. While the additional pressure of COVID and the resulting backlogs will clearly have had an impact on these figures, there's no dodging the fact that more than 13 years of Tory underinvestment in staff, beds, equipment and the NHS's crumbling infrastructure has played a huge role in the crisis. Skeptics will quite rightly claim that the 120,000 figure does not accurately account for variation between NHS trusts, nor does it link deaths to cause of death or provide any further details on the person's age and medical conditions. It doesn't account for the nuance of each individual case. Indeed, it does very little in itself to illustrate the pain and agony that individuals and their families are experiencing in their final months while waiting for treatment that never comes. As such, the 120,000 figure merely emphasises the potential scale of avoidable human tragedy when waiting lists balloon to 7.6 million, a figure that indicates that almost one in seven of us is waiting for treatment. As waiting lists are set to increase further in the coming winter months, potentially reaching the 9 million predicted by the Tories' own ex-health secretary, Sajid Javid, Rishi Sunak's key election pledge to cut NHS waiting lists lies in shreds.
This is a tragedy of the Prime Minister and his Chancellor's own making, born of their failure to get to grips with the key issues affecting the NHS and their disgraceful, ideologically driven refusal to enter into meaningful discussions with the British Medical Association over pay and conditions of those that give us care. Chris Loder, MP for West Dorset, calls for urgent road safety improvements on the hazardous A30. In recent times, the stretch of the A30, which connects Sherborne to Yeovil, has been the site of numerous road traffic accidents. In July, an 11-year-old was airlifted to hospital with serious injuries following a crash. In the same month, there was a serious two-vehicle collision involving an 80-year-old near to Bradford Road, and only last December, a fatal crash took place on this same stretch of dual carriageway. This stretch of the A30, known locally as Babylon Hill or Yeovil Road, urgently requires road safety improvements to mitigate the high number of incidents we've recently experienced and will continue to experience if nothing is done. Anyone from North Dorset travelling on this road will recognise the hazards. The four-mile-long dual carriageway has a speed limit of 70 miles per hour, the same as a motorway, but does not have the same safety features. It's peppered with junctions, not slip roads, that connect the villages of Bradford Abbas, Nether Compton, Overcompton and Trent to the A30. These junctions have been the site of many accidents. Apart from signage, the road doesn't have static speed cameras or technology to monitor speeding offences. Instead, the safety of road users is dependent on police mobile speed units and their capacity to deploy them. Speeds in excess of 120 miles per hour have been recorded on this stretch of road over the years, which can cause totally avoidable deaths. Since I was elected in 2019, I've met with many residents at meetings on the doorsteps and at surgeries to hear their concerns about the A30. In particular, the parishes of Bradford Abbas, Nether Compton and Overcompton, which are either bordered or bisected by this stretch of road, have shared their wish for measures to address excessive speeding. Their demands are warranted. Joining or exiting the A30 via a minor road junction is hazardous, especially at night. Road safety in West Dorset is firmly on my agenda, following fatalities on this stretch of road, the A3066 and the nearby A35. Only last year I lost one of my best friends from primary school in a fatal accident on the road from Sherborne to Dorchester. I'm very aware of the impact accidents have on victims, their friends and families. In 2021, I established my A-Roads Task Force to work closely with National Highways and Dorset Council to improve road safety across the constituency. It meets quarterly to address recent issues on our roads. In April, I raised the matter of West Dorset's situation with the Roads Minister, Richard Holden. I am now of the view that the best clear action comes in the form of average speed cameras on the A30 between Sherborne and Yeovil. Piecemeal measures are not enough. This road has become a hotspot for avoidable accidents and an unofficial racetrack between the two towns. I will be writing to the Highways Department at Dorset Council, which is responsible for the road, to voice my concerns and to set out my justification. And Chris goes on to mention that average speed cameras use automatic number plate reading ANPR technology to record a date and timestamp between two cameras to calculate a motorist's average speed. In practical terms, it would mean that the A30 would have two cameras installed at least 200 metres apart, deterring speeding motorists and improving road safety in the long term. I would be interested to hear your views on this, and if you would like to share your views with me, you can email me at hello at chrisloader, 
www.ctrl-z.co.uk. And do you have any questions for Chris? Chris has agreed to an open Q&A in the BV November issue. If you have any questions for the West Dorset MP, now's your opportunity. Ask him about his voting record, his opinion on water pollution, his work on rural public transport, a particularly pressing local issue, or maybe just his preferred biscuit for dunking. And you know you can rely on the BV to ask the most pressing questions. It's a great opportunity to put your questions and suggestions to your local MP, and he's promised to answer as many as space allows. Simply email your questions by the 30th of October to letters at bvmagazine.co.uk. Please include your full name and village or town. The Dorchester Literary Festival is a big event in the county's annual calendar and a great draw for book lovers not just from Dorset but from surrounding counties. 2023's festival will be both very varied and very interesting, with some big literary names coming along to talk about their books and subjects. Paul Atterbury and Janet Gleeson are the festival's directors, and I spoke to Janet a few days before the start of the festival and asked her at what point did she start to get really excited. Well, I mean, I'm excited now because every day you see people buying tickets and it's always lovely to see what people are interested in. And, you know, you try and second guess and you're never quite right. And um, and it's also really, really nerve wracking when you book authors, particularly if they're not, you know, huge names, just because you're interested in a subject. And um, and so when when people respond and, and are also interested, it's it's very gratifying. Because obviously it's easy to sell the big names, isn't it? Well, that's right. And, you you know, and you need them too to sort of draw attention to the whole event. But it's also in, important, I think, that festivals do feature the lesser known authors of interesting subjects. Absolutely. And and I was interested to see that you, you leave quite a bit of room for... Um, people who are going to come and talk about how to become an author or how to become a writer and how to get published. Yes, that's right. Well, we've always found that um, there's a lot of interest around, you know, getting your book published. And so in in past years, we've had a couple of events which sort of dealt with creative writing of one form or another. Maybe like last year we did cre- um, crime writing. Um, but this year we thought we'd we'd have a whole day devoted to it. And, um, and and also finish up with a poetry slam where local poets can come and read their work. And, and again, that, that's, you know, it's been interesting to see how people respond to that. And, and that one, I would imagine that would be very popular. A lot of the poetry really has been on the increase, hasn't it, in recent years? It has. And it's, and it's um, you know, I think it's important that we do recognise that. And of course, we're really, really thrilled and honoured that our highlight of the whole festival and our closing um, event is Lem Sisse because he's always been a massive hero of mine. I, I I love the sound of his new book, the the one that he will be coming to talk about. Yes, that's right. And it's I've I've just got a copy of it and I've started to read it and it's just beautiful little poems that you can pick up and think about and then return to. Uh, and it's called it's called Let the Light Pour In and it's really as I uh, if I've got it right about you know um, waking up in the morning and kind of looking at the day in a positive, giving it a positive start. Yes, that's it. Yes, absolutely. But they're, they're all, you know, quite simple little four-line poems. And, you know, I first got to know about Lem through his memoir, which is called My Name is Why. And I think he will be talking a little bit about that as well. 
And it's the most incredible story of, um, you know, what, what people can achieve against huge adversity. He, and, uh, he, he, he released that book a few years ago, didn't he? He did, Just yes. before the pandemic. And, yes. and it really was quite revelatory uh, because he had a, a, a very disadvantaged um, upbringing, didn't he? He did. He was adopted and then given back into care, you know, ended up in prison. And then out of that awful start in life, look what he's made of himself. And look how inspirational he is. And, I mean, he's now on the national curriculum and, um, you know, one of our leading poets. So lovely to to close the festival with him. But but let's begin at the beginning. I, you've got Victoria Hislop uh, there to talk about her, her new book, The Figurine. Um, very timely uh, when the question of who should return what art treasures and um, should that even happen? Exactly. And um, Victoria has been one of our main um, supporters right from the word go. And uh, so this is be this will be her third visit to Dorchester. So we're very excited about that. I haven't actually read the book yet, but I can't wait to pick it up. I don't imagine, Janet, <laughs> that you get very much time for reading before the, the festival, do you? Well, I try to I try to, you know, I try my best to have a, at least a quick, you know, look at them. Um, I was went away for a few days recently and I read Robert Peston's Crash, which is um, again on our first, our first um, opening day. And uh, I'm very excited about that one, too. Now, that sounds fascinating uh, because it, we, uh, top uh, news and current affairs personalities uh, are always something of a draw. And, and Robert Peston certainly will be, I'm sure. And, and, and he'll be with you not to talk about factual stuff, um, as one would expect, but a, a novel about the city of London and high finance and skullduggery. Exactly. And um, it's sort of it's, it's, it's kind of loosely based around the Northern Rock crash. Um, but the, what I think is so is so fascinating is that you it, you know the central character is a kind of alter ego this this um, a, a BBC journalist financial journalist so you know when he's telling you about what goes on he really does know what he's talking about and and that gives it uh, a greater appeal really I think doesn't it it does but I mean you know that's all well well and good but it's also actually you know, a rattling good yarn, a page turner. So, you know, it's got it's got those two things going for it. So it, uh, should, that should be a good one. And, yes. and I imagine that um, an, another author who will be a big draw is her honour, Wendy Joseph KC, uh, especially as she's coming to talk about her book on um, that great British obsession with murder. Well, that's right. And um, I mean, again, she's one that, uh, you know, when we booked, we weren't quite sure how the public were going to respond. But in fact, she was one of the first speakers to, to sell out. So I, I think she, she will be absolutely fascinating. And I mean, I think that the whole question of, um, you know, how, how the legal process works and getting the viewpoint of such a senior member of the legal establishment, will, you know, is a great privilege. And perhaps next year you could try for an even more senior um, female member of the, the judiciary, our first ever Lady Chief Justice, very recently appointed. Absolutely, yes. Well, if she writes a book, she can come. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, Damien Lewis, he'll be another big draw. The, the Damien Lewis, not to be confused with the actor of that name, with a slightly differently spelt name. Um, he's an excellent speaker, isn't he? And, and the man who's televised accounts of the SAS uh, last winter were very popular viewing. 
Indeed, yes. And um, he's he's a local author, which is rather nice. We always like to feature local authors. And again, Damien came last year and he's he's hugely popular and very animated. And I think he's also got one of the the people that he he features in in his book the door the daughter is um actually going to come to that event and um so that'll make it extra special for us so she'll have to stand stand up yes, at the end yes, of the event yes, and, exactly. and make herself known yes. won't she yes absolutely absolutely it, uh, janet you have a, a quite a heavy emphasis in the festival on non-fiction authors and topics from the countryside to space geography to coco chanel to politics to war and and pretty much everything in between. We do. I mean, we find that um, people really do enjoy nonfiction uh, in, in um, Dorchester, and history is is a huge favourite with the audience. But they're also interested in things like uh, nature and um, and health. So we try to, when we put the the festival together, we do try and have a very broad spectrum of subjects. So we we have fiction, but we also have a lot of nonfiction. Do you think that non-fiction is becoming more popular with readers now? I think it's always been popular. Um, and, you know, if you're lucky enough to be able to have these really um, eminent names in certain fields, you know, it, 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 it does draw people in. I mean, one, one um, person that we've invited this year, Nigel Biggar, is speaking on colonialism. And again, that's, you know, been a hugely controversial subject. Um, and people have really responded to that event so we've had you know we've had a very good uptake on ticket sales very highly topical you know possibly for me uh, the most fascinating looking event will be the one with archaeologist dr kat jarman uh, about the bone chests of winchester cathedral yes well we're very excited about that because actually i live in san abbas and we've recently been doing some archaeology in the in the field behind where I live and we found um, some bones and so you know I can't wait to hear what she's got to say about these bones and how you can you know all the information that you can extract from from the relics of um, so many centuries ago. And and these were not just saints bones that were held in but the bone chests in Winchester Cathedral that were, and were sacked and smashed up by the um by the the roundheads Cromwell's lot uh, it was was more rather more than that wasn't it well it was yes i mean um they 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 think that from these bones that that, that you can you can find out that you know there there were fem- females there were members of royalty and saints and all sorts of um, eminent people. I mean, the great thing about Saxon history is from what little um, shreds of evidence, you know, you can weave this extraordinary story and take take us back into another time, which we know so little about. You know, I, I don't want to put you on the spot, Janet, but do you have <laughs> do you do you have a, a preference from it for anything or a particular topic that um, interests you ab- above all others? Well, I, th- I mean, you know, no, I don't, not, not above all others. I am very, very excited about Lemsisse, but I'm also excited about, um, you know, the gardening events because we've, we've got two really eminent garden writers coming, Stephen Anderton, who's um, the gardening uh, correspondent on The Times, and also Alan Titchmarsh, who's very well known to everybody. You know, and I love garden. I think people in, in Dorset do tend to be keen on their gardens, so that's going to be fascinating justine picardy on chanel i mean i i don't know if you've seen the um documentary recently about chanel but it you know she's again very much of the moment because of the exhibition at the vna and she's a wonderful speaker 
So that'll that'll be that'll be one that would that should yes. attract uh, quite a lot of people. You know, yes. I, I imagine Janet that you you and your fellow uh, your co-director Paul Atterbury um, organizing a major week long literary festival like this is is quite an undertaking, isn't it? Well, it certainly is. I mean, um, you know, you you have to do everything from sort of printing out the labels of people's the volunteers names to booking the hotels to making sure that the authors are well looked after that we've got all their powerpoints ready and things like that so it's quite nerve-wracking at times but it's also a huge hugely enjoyable to actually meet your you know your heroes really and um and have a bit of time with them before before the event and to listen to the events Absolutely. And an awful lot of um, small details to, to think about. And of course, you would, I imagine you rely on quite a small army of volunteers, don't you, to help the whole thing run smoothly? We have the most fantastic volunteers and some of them come um, again and again. They're, they're marshaled into um, order by Rosie Johnson, who's been with us since the, since the kickoff nine years ago. And um, and we also, as well as our sort of regulars, we also work very closely with Thomas Hardy School to try and encourage young people and students in the sixth form to come and help because we think it's really good for them to have that on the, that experience on their CVs. And plus, you hope that they will really enjoy it too. Yes, exactly. exactly. <laughs> Tell me, Janet, do you do you ever wake in the middle of the night uh, in the run up to the festival and remember something critical that you'd forgotten or thought you'd forgotten? Yes, I do, and I and I wake up in the night thinking, "Did I do that?" So I have to write myself lots of notes and bits of sticky paper all around my office. Reminding so, myself to do is, that. So it is not just your office, but your whole house festooned with post-its. Well, it is, and um, and you know, I have brochures at every uh, you know at every at every point I can possibly have them, so I can remind myself what I'm meant to be doing on each day. But it's uh, you know, it's great fun. And, and then once it's all over, I imagine you and your co-director Paul Atterbury um, go off on holidays. Do you? Well, we yes, we like to put our feet up, but I mean, in the immediate aftermath, there's quite a lot of um, admin, obviously, to you know, ends to tie up, and then very soon, you know, you have a little bit of a lull, but very soon you you start having to think about next year because by December, I'm writing to the publishers in London saying, can I come and see you to talk about what you've got coming in next coming out next year? So li- not much let up and and a lot of lot of satisfaction and enjoyment. Yes, I think, I mean, for me, the satisfaction is also seeing the room full of people and seeing people coming out at the end saying, oh, wasn't that interesting? And seeing, you know, seeing people queuing up to have a little chat with the author. It's it's hugely uh, rewarding. Dorchester Literary Festival co-director Janet Gleeson. I'm speaking today with Pauline Batstone. Pauline, you're a member of the Dorset Council. For anybody who may not be clued up on local affairs... How long have you been on the council and who do you represent? And Well, I've been on the current council since its inception in 2019, the Dorset Unitary Authority. Before that, I was on the county council from 2000, I think it was 13, I always forget. And then I was on Dorset Council for a long time from, uh, well, no, six years, 93 to 99, um, at, at various levels of uh, district, uh, uh, local authorities before then. I see. And you represent? Blackmore Vale Ward, no. Um, but at various times I've represented Sturminster and the villages around and wards change almost every election. But uh, currently Blackmore Vale, which for those who don't know, is predominantly rural, agricultural, um, 
but with some already reasonably large villages. You're not in your usual part of Dorset. You're elsewhere. Tell us about where you are today. Well, today I'm actually in uh, Perth in Western Australia, but I've returned from spending a week in the other Dorset, Dorset Council, or rather Dorset Municipal Area in the northeastern part of Tasmania. Tasmania. I mean, I think a lot of people, myself included, won't have been aware that there was or is a Dorset in Tasmania. How did you become aware of it and, and what prompted your visit? Well, I've, I've had a long-standing relationship with Australia. My grandmother was born here, my uncle migrated here, and I've been coming here since I was a student working here in 71. So I've got a long-standing relationship with Australia. I've visited quite a few places around Australia from far, far north of Western Australia uh, through as far north as the lower part of Queensland and everything in between. Um, so I've but I've never visited Tasmania. And uh, when we were setting up Dorset Council, I became the first chairman of Dorset Council, our Dorset Council. And we realised that um, there was another Dorset Council when we were trying to set up our internet link. Suddenly, you know, domains were taken or um, email addresses were taken. We became aware, and I know our communications team tried to make contact with Dorset Council. And I tried as chairman to make contact with Dorset Council. And Zilch came back. So I thought, I was, as I was planning to come this year anyway, because I come every few years to catch up with family and friends, and I was coming to a friend's wedding, um, it seemed a good excuse to go right across to a part I'd never seen before, uh, to Tasmania, which cost, cost as much overall as it did to fly here, but that's beside the point. So I took myself off there, and uh, I took with me, in fact, my friend of 61 years, um, who I met in when she was visiting England, um, we've been friends in each other's, met each, stayed in each other's homes for 61 years, and I'm part of her family, effectively. Um, and she said she realised we've been friends for 61 years, and I said, great, let's have a glass of champagne. And she said, no, I'm coming to Tasmania with you. Okay, that sounds fine, because otherwise I was going on my own. Um, and we set ourselves off uh, a couple of weeks ago, and we had it, what should have been a couple of simple flights ended up as a total... The sort of nightmare if I'd been on my own, but a laugh because we were supporting each other. Um, we ended up very late in uh, the northern part of Tasmania. We were heading for Scottsdale, which is the, effectively you'd call it the county town, the heart of Dorset municipality. I hope to be there in time for their council meeting on the 18th of uh, September at six o'clock. And by the time our plane had decided it was going to go, then it wasn't, then it was going to turn back, then it, it was a nightmare. And we ended up not getting through to, to Scottsdale until well into the evening, long past council time, which probably diplomatically just as well, because they are having a little overall difficulty. And if anyone looks on the website, they currently are um, subject to a, a commission of inquiry because of allegations made to, against the councillors and the mayor and the general manager. So probably not the most diplomatic moment to bob up and say, hi, I'm here, and may explain why they've not replied to emails. So I had brought gifts from our chairman, the Council Apothecary, a glass paperweight with our crest, Dorset crest on it. And Val had also found a book of lovely photos of Dorset. And I bought a book of, by the Tall Puddle Martyrs, who, one of whom came, was, was deported to Tasmania, but not to this part. Um, so I left those with the council offices. Um, uh, and uh, that's as far as we've got. So I'll be interested when I get back and get reunited with my council computer and my council emails to see if we've had a response to that. But uh, I, I was very pleased to, you know, it, to have the chance to have a look at 
what was a very different part of Australia from what I visited before. Beautiful scenery around Scottsdale, uh, the Dorset, the Dorset place names. The main settlers there, I think, were folk from Dorset, either voluntary or involuntary. Um, they're the Cornish who were there, not least because they were tin miners and there's tin mining in that area. And they were the Scots because the Scots went everywhere after the um, clearances. So Dorset place names, Scots place names, Cornish place names, and uh, very lovely people. It was a delightful stay. I would have happily stayed longer there. Very good walking country um, or cycling country. And uh, as I say, mountains, as well as some what we would identify as farmland, uh, our sort of farmland, a lot of dairying or beef cattle. And I think in the past, they were very much uh, priding themselves on their, their production of cheese and butter and uh, dairy products, and still to some degree are. So thoroughly recommend Tasmania for a visit, but it's a heck of a long way. Well, your article in the BVM certainly gives some of the detail of your, your journey, which, as you've just said, didn't go according to plan. The roads over there sound like they're not quite up to Dorset standards, and we might complain about some of the roads in this Dorset, but it sounds like the ones over there were a bit uh, a bit iffy. Well, some of them, the, the major routes were absolutely fine, but then the Tasman Highway is a major route, and that was distinctly, oh, my gosh, my friend Maureen was driving, it was dark, it was a car we didn't know, and she's all used to that, driving on those sorts of roads she's driven all her life. But we're hammering up through the Tasman Highway. And I'm thinking, just don't look down to the side. And yes, please, can we keep in the middle of the road? Don't hug the side. Please don't hug the side. And parts of it have been, obviously, they're doing a major renovation project with it. And then when we went off to Bridport and for subsequently Weymouth, perfect, beautiful roads, signs warning you about beware the Tasman, Tasmanian devil um, who might leap out and get itself run over. And we saw wallabies and, uh, you know, you definitely knew this was a different Weymouth or Bridport from the one that we're used to. I would say we could quite see why the folk who came there and were remembering their homes uh, might have called Weymouth Weymouth because it had quite a lot of nice sand, not as good as Weymouth Beach, but pretty good. And uh, Lulworth, yeah, a bit more rocky, but some reminiscences of Weymouth and the uh, sweeping bay line. And I was told that don't bother to go to Lulworth, it's just a few fishing shacks. No, the person in the in the information office who advised that actually hadn't been there for a while, I suspect, because it was some very expensive properties uh, sitting above the cliff tops and you know, lovely holiday homes and retreats for someone. Do we know how it originally became Dorset, how the name came about? Yeah, I had some information from the Tasmania Dorset History Society, and I think it was 1836, when they... Obviously, there was some sort of municipal reorganisation and they did have Cornwall and they did use a number of our county place names or shires as they would have been then. Dorset was chosen for that one, probably because of the number of Dorset people and Dorset place names in that area. There were also Somerset place names around, I noticed, but slightly outside the Dorset area. And of course, when we were deporting people, uh, the main place to deport them into Tasmania was Hobart. Originally, they were coming to both Sydney, Botany Bay and Hobart. But they also were deporting people through Launceston, as they pronounced it, Lansom, as you would in Cornwall, um, Launceston, uh, up the River Tamar. Uh, so Dorset people would have gone out from there. And I guess, too, we had Dorset sailors sailing along the coast deciding to stay. And it's worth recording that this was a time of quite significant immigration uh, into Australia, not least through transportation, as you mentioned, and 160,000 or so people were transported over 50 years in that time, and a lot yeah. of voluntary immigrants as well. And, and one thing I want to do when I get back, and I've got some time, is to look at a bit more into 
who came as both migrants and deportees. My own great grandparents uh, came into um, uh, New South Wales as migrants in the in 1867, um, and you just think of these people, the courage they had, the determination they had. Probably they weren't told the whole truth of what they were coming to, but living in shacks, um, possibly a tent on the beach when you first got here, women who'd been brought up in a relative comfort compared with this in the UK, suddenly having to cope with the most horrible conditions. You know, they, they were people of considerable courage Definitely. and they couldn't go back and they would never see their families again. You described the, the similarities and differences between Weymouth and Bridport in particular. What's the climate like over there? Is it any similarities to this Dorset or not? It gets colder, I think, in the winter, mm. from what I could gather. They are well used to snow, because, and not least because they've got these mountains around them. And also it will get probably get warmer in the summer. Now it was very pleasant. I was wandering around in very much what I was wearing at home before I left but they will have a colder winter. And I was quite amused by uh, a couple, my friends and I were talking to, who were working at the place we stayed in, and they said, only been out of Tasmania once, that's right, because the husband wanted to go and see giraffes, so they went to Melbourne to see the zoo. And, and they were most unimpressed because Melbourne has a hill outside that's called Mount something or other, and the husband was most unimpressed if they call that a mountain, they should see the hills in Tasmania. Sniff, sniff. So, uh, yeah, I would say it is a... A very nice place to visit from our part of the world. Just, you know, you've, you've got to fly to Melbourne or Sydney to get there. And you're making that return journey quite soon, aren't you? And when you get back, are you hoping that you will continue this relationship between the two councils? Well, let's see if we can make a relationship first, because mm. it's been a bit one-sided so far, but let's see what we can do. Mm. Uh, it would be nice to make some links, particularly nice if we could make some links perhaps between schools there. But we can, we'll see what we can do. Pauline, thank you very much for sharing the story with us. It sounds like a, an epic adventure and uh, one that, as you say, is recommended for others if they've got the stomach for the long journey. One thing I did uh, should say, I'm, I'm on the Dorset Trailway Network Committee and outside our holiday accommodation, we had the Tasmanian Trailway Network. So there you go, lots of similarities. Thoroughly recommend it. <laughs> Pauline, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Councillor Pauline Batstone there on her journey to the Dorset on the other side of the world. And that's all we have for you in this first episode of the BV podcast for the month of October 2023. Terry and I will be back again with more Tales of Dorset Life in episode two, so do join us again later in the month. Until then, it's goodbye from me, Jenny Devitt. And until next time, it's goodbye from me, Terry Bennett. <laughs> <laughs>